Well, my goal is that you would want to build a God-centered ministry and a God-centered life because God is a God-centered God. That's my aim tonight. That you would long, more than you've ever longed, to build a God-centered life and a God-centered ministry because you have seen afresh that God is a God-centered God. There are reasons for why I think this is urgent. Let me give you several. One is, we sang a song yesterday at our worship service that was, the music was written by John Bloom, one of my associates, and the words were written by King David. Whom have I in heaven but thee, O Lord? If I were a singer, I'd sing it for you. Whom have I in heaven but thee, O Lord? And on earth there's nothing that I desire besides thee. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26. Now, there's a line in there that is inscrutable to most Christians and all the more inscrutable to unbelievers. There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Does anybody believe that? Can anybody with any authenticity say that in this room? There is nothing, no wife, no child, no health, no life, no job, no pizza, no sex that I desire besides you. What does that mean? What could that possibly mean? St. Augustine got at it like this. He said, it's a prayer found in his confessions. He loves thee too little, O God, who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. I think that's it. He loves thee too little, who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. Here's the way David Livingston, the missionary, put it. It's written on his uh, birthplace in a stained glass window in Scotland. I have a picture of it that somebody just sent me recently. He said, it's written in the window, came from his journal. I will not value anything I have or possess except in relationship to the kingdom of Christ. I will not value anything I have or possess except in relationship to the kingdom of Christ. So now test yourself. This is one evidence of our God-centeredness or lack of it, whether we can say these things and mean them. 
Do you find yourself writing that kind of thing in your journal? Do you find yourself praying that way? If not, you have a long way to go to be where David was when he wrote that psalm, don't you? Whom have I in heaven but God? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides God. And if there is any desire that I have for anything other than God, it must be a desire that is there because of God. That's God-centeredness. That's radical saturation with God. How are you doing? Here's my second reason for thinking we're in need of this truth. Um, Children's curriculum. It is so unbelievably weak across the country. What we teach our children is absolutely pathetic. One of the illustrations Sally Michael likes to use, she writes curriculum for our church. She's one of our associates. Her husband and, and she are our ministers for parenting and, and children's discipleship. And uh, she loves to say, what do you typically read in children's curriculum concerning the feeding of the 5,000? What you typically read is, the point of the story is, share your lunch. That's bad theology. And bad exegesis. Especially bad exegesis. It's good morals, which is not what we need in America. We need Christ, mighty to save and feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. This is about a triumphant, glorious, sovereign Christ. And our children need to tremble before this Christ. Because, read on, read on in Mark 6, right? What happens after the feeding of the 5,000? They get in a boat, leave Jesus behind, start out into the sea. A storm comes up. Oh, dear, we're in a storm. Here comes Jesus walking on the water. This is not about sharing your lunch here. He's walking on the water, and they see him. It's a ghost. It's not a ghost. He gets into the boat. They're terrified. He lifts his hands and he says, be still. And there is a great calm. And you know what the text says? You know what Mark says? They feared greatly because they had gained no insight from the loaves. And we say, the point is, share your lunch. And we lead our children out of insight, along with the disciples. The whole point is he's a mighty Christ. He walks on water. He speaks to waves. He speaks to wind. He can push jets aside on September 11. And we're so afraid of it. We're afraid of this Christ. We won't speak of him. So children's curriculum makes me think there's some needs here. 
in the American church. Here's a third pointer. The absolutely pathetic response of the American church to September 11. Here's my bottom line. I want to give people hope. Whatever was written beforehand, Romans 15, 4. Whatever was written beforehand was written for your instruction in order that by the steadfastness and encouragement of the Scriptures, you might have hope. You don't know that verse as well as you should. We might have hope. Everything in the Bible is written to give hope. Everything. We want a hope-filled people. You know what? If you protect God from His sovereignty, you remove people's hope. And it doesn't matter what their immediate emotional responses to that are. If you try to rescue God from His might and power and purpose, you undermine people's hope. Because who's to say this God could do anything good for you, rescue you in any way, bring you sovereignly to glory, if he cannot imagine, manage the the affairs of a crisis like that? You are very perplexed, aren't you, what I'm going to preach? What in the world does this guy believe? You know what Jesus' response to it was? He told us. It was clear as day. And his response was so radically God-centered, it must have taken the breath of the disciples away, as my sermon following it did. For some. Jesus, Luke 13 gets a report. What do you have to say? Here's a reporter now. Here's a reporter in Jesus' face with a microphone. Okay, okay, rabbi. Okay, teacher of the law. Okay, representative of God. What do you have to say about Pilate's slitting the throats of the Galileans and mingling their blood with their sacrifices? Tell us, tell us something about that, God representative. And what about the 18 people on whom the World Trade Center fell? I mean, the Tower of Siloam. Tell us something. And he looks into the eyes of this newscaster and says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Period. End of conversation. Where did that come from? Give me a break. Have a heart. I'm not the one to be spoken to here. I'm interviewing you for the radio. Don't talk to me. Talk to them. You're the issue. You're the issue. Newscaster. You know, Jesus was not your ordinary teacher. He never said anything we expect him to say. Ever. He was always blowing people apart. He, he was absolutely uncategorizable. No boxes fit Jesus, which is one of the reasons I believe in him so deeply. But let me ask you, where did that come from? 
unless you repent, you with the microphone, you will perish. Where did that come from? Here's where it came from. There's a massive theology under it. And the theology goes like this. Everybody, without exception, deserved to have been in the World Trade Center. Period. Everybody should have been there and died. That's the assumption. A few of us got spared on September 11. For no reason. You do not deserve another breath tonight. Every breath you take is a free gift from God. If you make it to the end of this service, you should be on your face when you get home. I was given life tonight. In other words, there's a a changed order in where the amazement should fall. People are amazed. Radically man-centered American people are amazed when anything bad happens to us. And God is called to account. Where are you? Jesus is amazed when good things happen to us. Where's the problem of pleasure in America? Everybody harps on the problem of pain. Where's the problem of pleasure? Now, lest you think I have no heart, when we had, we were having a staff meeting when this happened, Tuesday morning. And as we heard and listened and put the radio in the middle of the table and wept and prayed and wept and prayed and shook, we, we made a plan. We'll have three services. We'll have one tonight. We'll have one tomorrow night. We'll have one Sunday. We'll put a new banner on the roof called Jesus When All Is Shaking. And that's going to happen just like this, and we'll be ready to go because our people are going to need us big time right now. And we said, here's the banner that's going to fly over these three services. A service of sorrow, self-humbling, and steady hope in our King and Savior, Jesus Christ. And our first service was all sorrow. And our second service was all self-humbling. Not Muslim humbling. Self-humbling. I'm the issue here. I should have perished. I should get on my face. I should repent. I shouldn't be naming any group like Jerry Falwell did and then apologize the next day. None of that name calling. None of that finger pointing except right Here, Piper, on his face, Wednesday night, with my church. Oh, God, have mercy on me. And then Sunday morning, there is hope. And it isn't because God loses control. There's no hope in that message. And we were ready for it then. Uh, There were other things we did, too. You can get all of those messages. 
You can hear the one on Sunday online, desiringgod.org. They're all right there. Boom. Stream it. You can hear that message and read all those other things. But here's my here's my point. The reason we can't say to the radio guy who calls us from ABC or to whatever, the reason we can't say, Mr. Brockow or whoever, the issue here is whether you repent or not. It's because we don't, we don't have a God-centered passion and view of the universe. We are as saturated with man-centeredness and our concerns and our welfare and our rights as everybody else is. That's my third observation for why I think this is so necessary. And here's the last one, related one. Um, And here I'll have to be careful too, although I'm really not being very careful. Um, If you hang out a flag, the question I want to ask is, Test yourself. How come a flag goes up for America when we're so dishonored? And no flags go up when the outrage of the universe happens that God is dishonored every day of our lives in this country and Afghanistan and Kazakhstan. Uzbekistan, Pakistan, Egypt, Israel, Canada, Mexico, China, Australia. Where's the, where's the divine patriotism in the church? That Jesus is king of the nations. Jesus is lord of the universe. Jesus is the master of the whole Middle East. Our allegiance to him is 10,000 times stronger and greater than our allegiance to America. We are exiles and aliens on planet Earth and in America. Where is something comparable to what we have seen in the church for Christ? I, I, I have no problems with patriotism. Because it is rooted in a render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And what is God's? Everything. And once you have rendered to God everything, you're in a position to render little Caesar the little bit that he gets. And until you render to God what is God's, your rendering to Caesar what is his will be out of proportion to what God should get in your life. And I do not think, as I look at the flags and I watch my people, I do not think there is something proportionable in their lives to what they are feeling right now in their patriotic zeal concerning Jesus. I don't think most Americans feel like exiles here, frankly. I really don't. I think we've cultivated a kind of America equals Christianity thing to just about give Osama bin Laden a right to say what he says. 
we've just about given a sense that pro-America and pro-Christ are just about interchangeable. Just measure our enthusiasms. Not our words. Who cares about words? It's affections we're talking about. It's dynamic of life. And it's a tragedy that the Muslim world sees America as Christian. It's a tragedy. It's anything but Christian. We export filth all over the world. That's what they see. They see it on television. They see it in concerts. And we say, we're a Christian nation under God. And they draw their conclusions. What else would you draw? The church needs to be way more countercultural than it is. Way more countercultural. So I'll take, I'll risk here telling you what I did on Sunday morning. We went straight for God on Sunday morning afterwards, 16th. We have three services. A lady comes up to me and after the second service, and bless her heart, I know this lady, I love this lady, and she said, because we just sang songs like we just sang here. We just sang those great God-exalting songs and songs like when peace like a river attendeth my way or sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say it is well, it is well with my soul. And she came up, she said to me, couldn't we sing one patriotic song? I looked her right in the eye and said, no. Not because I'm not a pacifist. You want to read what I think about what should be happening? Read the article in World Magazine one issue ago. That's what I think should be happening. I'm praying that right now in Afghanistan it be focused, just, effective, and short. And that as many non-criminals be spared as possible. God did not give the sword to the government in vain. I'm not a pacifist. I'm a Christian. 10,000 times before I'm an American. America's going to go off the scene of history, folks. It's going to go off the scene of history, either by the return of Jesus or by some other group replacing it. You think that's going to phase King Jesus? Not in the least. So those are my four reasons. That's all introduction. I told you the first half of the message would be introduction. And by the way, there are two Q&A sessions tomorrow. You got problems with what I just said? Come on. Come on. I love Q&A. I hate written questions. Stand up. I want to see your face. And we'll have a great time tomorrow. You get to see my face and take notes. and Everything I say everywhere in the world is recorded. I can't get away with anything. Everything comes back to me. So it's going to come back to you. And we'll have a great time growing together. And if you want me to qualify something, and I should, I will.
Well, what, what's the message if that was introduction? All that was to say why I think you should leave here when we're done with this conference with a passion for a God-centered life and a God-centered ministry. That's why I think it's an issue. Now I need to give you Bible. You need Bible. You don't need Piper. You need Bible put under this. Is there, is there biblical warrant for talking this way and saying that this is a need? Well, there is. There's lots of Bible. So we're going to do mainly Bible now for the last uh, 30 minutes. See, I'm going, to, I'm going to take a full hour here tonight. So if you're not used to that, neither am I. It feels so good to have it. <laughs> My people won't give it to me. And you don't have a choice. Well, you do too. You could get up and leave. Why did God create the universe? Why did He redeem mankind? Why is He coming again in glory? What's the why of it all? Oh, we gotta get this question right. Why does history exist? Why did he bring the universe into being with its billions of galaxies? Choose a little speck called planet Earth. Send his almighty, infinitely valuable son onto this planet. Suffer the worst excruciating death imaginable. And it was, I doubt it, an accident. No, I don't think it was an accident that that cross showed up. That you've all seen pictures of in the newspaper. In the World Trade Center rubble. That was incredible. I wouldn't presume to interpret that. I just say, take your breath and wonder that God carved that thing in such perfect proportion out of tons of steel and planted it where he did. Why? I don't know. I'm just trembling. Because Jesus is the center of the universe. And the crucifixion is the center of history. Now, why? What's it all about? So I'm going to give you a thesis statement. Then we'll go to the Bible and see if I can support it. God created everything. He does everything in order to display and get admiration for his glory. For the display and the admiration of His glory is why He does everything. Now, I choose those two words carefully. Display and admiration. You know the difference between those two words? One is objective reality outside of me. Display, revelation, demonstration. And the other is subjective response inside of me. Admiration, exaltation, admiring Cherishing, treasuring, delighting, worshiping. And God does everything he does to objectively display his magnificence and subjectively win back from humanity admiration. And it doesn't take a lot of thought to realize how utterly God-centered that goal is. If you had a goal like that, to display your glory and get admiration from people, you'd be admirable to nobody. And nobody, well, that's an overstatement, and here especially it is, 
Very few people admire God for this, too. They don't believe it. They don't even let themselves say the word that God is God-centered. They fail the quiz. The quiz. Here are the questions in the quiz. Who's the most God-centered person in the universe? Answer, God is the most God-centered person in the universe. Quiz question number two. Who is uppermost in God's affections? Answer, God is uppermost in God's affections. Question three. Is God an idolater? Answer, no. He worships nobody above God. Question four. What is the ultimate energy of the universe? Answer, the energy of worship inside the Trinity of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father, mediated by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, exploding in the spillover of His glory for the admiration of His creatures. That's the origin of energy. Once there was no physical energy, there was no matter, there was no time, there was no space, just God. That's all it was. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, eternally existing in infinitely happy, energetic worship. And it spilled over. Let there be light. And there was light. Let there be man and woman to know me, love me, admire me, reflect me. That's what it's all about. It's all about God. He did it for His glory. And there are other questions in that quiz that people fail as well, but I'll spare you now and move to the Bible. Otherwise, I won't make the headway I need. Here's the way I want to do it. What I want to do is persuade you that God is God-centered and it's the foundation of your God-centered ministry. And and having my dad here prompts me to do something that I, I usually allude to my father at this point in a message like this. And I say, people sometimes ask me, Where did you learn to talk like this? This is not your ordinary way of talking. And I say, well, I grew up in a home where daddy didn't always talk like this either. But daddy, you, more than any other text, perhaps after Romans 8.28, would say, Johnny, whatever you do, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I can't blame him for this this message tonight. Please. He may be sitting there squirming like crazy. Oh, why did he say that? Don't blame him for that. 
but blame him for God-centeredness. Whether I get it right or not, that's my problem, not his. But that he sowed the seed year after year after year in signed-off letters, in telephone calls, and in family devotions with Johnny, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. So Now, what he never said, and I've had to say, because, you see, all of you have heard 1 Corinthians 10.31. Everybody in this room probably knows that verse by heart and wouldn't call it into question a minute. And you yawn and go out and live man-centered ways. Why? You've never been shocked out of your britches by the God-centeredness of God. That's what landed on me in seminary in 1968 to 69, reading Jonathan Edwards. Studying unity of the Bible, reading the book of Romans as though for the first time through the eyes of a God-centered man, I began to see, my goodness, there's a foundation for 1 Corinthians 10.31 in God. It's not just a duty towards God, it's God's design for God. He talks this way because He really wants you to praise Him, and if you want somebody to praise you, you are vain. We want to say God's vain. Yikes. What do we just say? And so quick, change the channel. Watch a little TV. Get the radio on. Something familiar. Give me that kid's curriculum again. So when I began to see that underneath the command from God that I glorify God, is a very uncomfortable assumption. It changed everything. And I'm just trying to change everything for you, that's all. I just want everything in your life to be changed. I'd like your world to be turned upside down tonight. I'd like you to walk out of here with your brain fried with the God-centeredness of God. Now, that's not going to happen if I leave it here and don't give you Bible. So here we go. we got 20 minutes. Here we go. The way we'll do it is by taking six of the most glorious works of God he has ever performed. There are others, but I'm going to take six. They all rhyme with each other if you can tolerate the big, fat theological syllables. Number one, I'll list them and then I'll come back to them. Predestination. Number two, creation. Number three, incarnation. Number four, propitiation. Number five, sanctification. And number six, consummation. In 20 minutes, believe it or not. (laughs) My question is, why did God do those glorious things for us? Why did he do them? What's the motive? What's the goal? What's the driving force from the Godhead for those six glorious acts? Let's go. Number one, predestination. Ephesians chapter one, verses four to six. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us in love To be his sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, unto the praise 
of the glory of his grace. So in that long chain of why he did what he did, it terminates on the praise of the glory of his grace. Ace pinon doxes tain caritas autu. And I mention the Greek because it occurs two other times in the same 14 verse sentence of Ephesians 1. Verse, that was verse 6. The second one is in verse 12. That we might be unto the praise of His glory. Verse 14, He redeemed us unto the praise of His glory. There's just no doubt about why He predestined us to be His children in love. That we might praise His glory. You got to figure out a way, and I'll take this up tomorrow. You got to figure out a way to describe this divine vanity as love. Have you ever worked on that problem? C.S. Lewis sure worked on it. He stumbled on big time all the Psalms telling us by the Spirit of God, to praise God. He said it sounded like an old woman trying to get compliments. He was 29 years old and didn't want to believe it. He really wrestled with what's got to be wrestled with. This, at the human level, would be vanity. I'm doing everything I do to get you to praise me. This is the love of God. And if you can't put that together... You've got to quit work and come tomorrow. Take a day off or something. Or maybe I can do it tomorrow night. I will do it tomorrow night. If you have to work tomorrow, I'll, I promise to give you that answer tomorrow night, at least as I understand it. Okay, so that's number one. Predestination. The goal of predestination is that God does it under the praise of his glorious grace. This is a God-centered goal. Number two, creation. Why were you created? Why was the universe created? Why was God, why did God create everything? Isaiah 43, 6. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. There's no doubt why you exist. You were created for His glory. That is a very, very, very ambiguous statement. The word glorify is so worn out in our theological jargon that we need some help here. Because you can understand for God's glory in an absolutely blasphemous way. The word glorify could be exchanged with beautify. Why are these flowers here? Answer. To beautify a sterile platform. Right? Just be blank, you know? This green and black speakers. So it's put here to improve the beauty. So now if you treat the word glorify or beautify that way, you blaspheme God. 
You can't improve on the beauty of God. Who do you think you are, right? We don't mean that when we say glorify. We don't mean add to the glory of God, improve upon the glory of God. Get God to be a little more pretty, handsome, acceptable, none of that. That's not what we mean. He didn't come for that purpose. We mean display the glory of God, magnify the glory of God. It's the difference between a telescope and a microscope, right? Those both magnify. A microscope takes little things and makes them look bigger than they are. If you try to do that with God, you blaspheme. He's not little and you can't make him look bigger than he is. Telescopes are designed to take things that look little to the world and cause them to look like what they really are, namely magnificent. And that's the way we're supposed to magnify God. There's no doubt about why you were created, why you have the personality, the hair, the weight, the the family you do. You are who you are, absolutely unique on planet Earth in order to refract in a unique way the splendor of God through your life. Like a telescope helps the world see how magnificent he is. So how are you doing? Are, do you get up in the morning and say, how can I so live? How can I so speak? How can I so sacrifice and suffer so that people see the all-satisfying beauty and worth of my king? That's why you were made. To be a telescope of God's glory. Number three. Incarnation. Romans 15, 8 and 9. Christ became a servant to the circumcision. That is, he became a Jew. To show God's truthfulness. In order to confirm the promises given to the patriarch, so he's going to prove that God's a truth teller when he makes promises. And then here's this second purpose he came. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, he became a servant to the circumcision. He became a man born under the law, born of woman, a rabbi. A Messiah, a crucified Savior. Why? So that the nations, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, nominal Christians, secular agnostic Americans, might glorify him for his mercy. Notice the order between mercy and glory. Mercy is penultimate. Glory is ultimate. God is ultimate. Man is penultimate. This is why Americans cannot fathom the biblical message. It is foolishness. Because until God becomes central, sin against God cannot be a capital offense. And therefore, all the bad things that happen to me, I do not deserve, least of all, everlasting burning. Unintelligible. Therefore, the cross is unintelligible. In America, you know what the cross is inside most evangelical churches? It's an echo of my value. 
Look what he paid for me. It's not that. It's an echo of the value of the righteousness of God, which had been called into question by God's justifying the ungodly. Which leads us to number four. Propitiation. Romans 3, 25 and 26. God put Christ forward as a propitiation. That means an appeasement of his wrath. He put his son between us and his wrath to absorb that wrath so that now the sluice gates are open to all his mercy and his only demeanor toward us is kindness in Christ Jesus, even if we suffer, which I'll talk about tomorrow night. We read the rest of it. He put his son forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to demonstrate God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. There isn't a more important paragraph in the Bible than Romans three twenty-one to 26. Not a one. And if we could help American Christians understand this, we would have done a great service. Do you hear the problem that the cross is designed to solve? It's the injustice of forgiveness. What American loses sleep at night over the injustice of God's forgiving them? If it were not unjust for God to forgive us, he wouldn't have killed his son to be able to do it. And that is not an overstatement to say he killed his son because Isaiah 53 said, it was the good pleasure of God to bruise him. Those are Isaiah's words, not mine. He took the life of his son Because it is absolutely unthinkable to justify the ungodly. Proverbs 17, 17, I think, got the right verse, says it's an abomination for a judge to justify the ungodly. And Romans 4, 5 says, but to him who does not work, but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned to him as righteousness. My only hope with God is that he will justify the ungodly and thus be an unjust judge. Any courtroom judge in Greenville County that looks a rapist and a murderer in the face and says, that's all right, you can go, I just let it go. Everybody would cry out, you can't do that. You cannot do that. And that's exactly what he did for you on the cross. How can he do it? But my point is, who's wrestling with that? We think, we think it ought to come to us. And God, you've got to give an account if you don't treat me nice. He doesn't owe you another day of life. You know, death is never doing any person wrong. Vertically, it is horizontally. It was murderous, wicked sin that happened on September 11. It should be punished with everlasting burning and will be for some. 
But God did no wrong because he owes nobody anything. Nothing. That is very hard for Americans to believe. They think God owes them plenty. You can't understand the cross if you're not God-centered. You will smosh it, mush it, wreck it, and turn it into an echo of your own excellence. A diamond in the rough. Look what he paid. That's wicked. Number five, sanctification. Sanctification. Philippians 1.11 It is my prayer that you may be filled with the fruits of righteousness which come through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So in answer to Paul's prayer for the Philippians, he moves into their lives by the Holy Spirit and he fills them with fruits of righteousness. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. To the glory of the praise of God. Sanctification is all about the glory of God. Lastly. Consummation. Second Thessalonians 1 9. And we may be nearer to this than we know. Second Thessalonians 1 9. Those who do not obey the gospel will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Mm. Hear and weep. Will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and exclusion from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day. Why? Why is he coming to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at in all who have believed? Jesus is coming back to be marveled at. That's why he's coming. It's coming to be marveled at. And the big question for you tonight as I close is whether you resent that. Do you resent that Christ-centered motive of Christ to come back? You ask Jesus, why are you coming? And he says, I'm coming to be marveled at. I'm coming to be marveled at. Now, here's what's left. I'm done. Here's the question ringing in most people's minds. Whatever happened to the God that I thought I knew in John 3.16? Whatever happened to love? Whatever happened to His... Pursuing me with goodness and mercy all my days. Whatever happened to working everything together for my good? What? Where? Where? I'm. You got to help me here. So. I will. I'll try. But I hope I hope there's enough biblical rootage in this room. That you are not unwilling to say, 
God does everything he does from predestination to creation to incarnation to propitiation to sanctification to consummation for his glory. That's why he does everything he does. If you need help seeing why God's God-centeredness is the essence of his love, and you want to hear me say it, then you got to come back or get the tape. You may already have the answer. I hope you do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I long so much for these brothers and sisters and for my own soul to see you as you really are. A God infinite in holiness and majesty and power and truth and wisdom and grace and justice and wrath towards sin and mercy towards penitent sinners. Oh God, open our eyes and give us the gift of trembling so that we can obey when Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. Draw near and as we go home and lay our heads down, teach us by your spirit. If I have said anything amiss or out of sync with your word and your will, strike it out of people's minds. And if, God, this is true, don't let it be plucked off the path by the devil. Don't let it be choked out by the cares and the pleasures of this world. And don't let it be dried up by hard times. But let it bear fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. I ask this in your great powerful name, Lord Jesus. Amen.